always recover. <laughs> always. <laughs> always backwards. Always recover. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really nice to have you here. It is an exciting thing to be met together to talk about science and learning mm -hmm. and knowledge and the solace. And so go ahead and talk. Go for it. I heard you're going to tell some really Okay, I would, stories. you know, you're right. I, I would like to introduce today's speaker, Dr. <laughs> Peje Monet. <laughs> I thought it was Science Live with Roger Billings. And? And I'm ready to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> uh, looks like we're about out of time. <clears throat> well, it is good to be together on such a memorable occasion, and I hope it's going to be. Did I ever tell you about one of my very first inventions? Huh. Well, mm -hmm. which one was it? It was one of the real early ones. Yeah. You know, just starting out as a, I didn't even know I was going to be an inventioner yet. This is maybe how I discovered that I have a future in inventing. Really? Yeah, it was a, it was a flying projectile that I invented. Sounds, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> well, actually, it started with a discovery. I was walking through the living room in our home, mm -hmm. and on the floor, I found a rubber band. I discovered it. <laughs> and I picked it up, and I found out you could stretch it. Mm -hmm. This is getting more and more exciting. Yeah, it is, it? all of a sudden. And then I went into invention mode, and I put on the end of my oh finger. My <laughs> the invention And I pulled it back like this. And it slipped off my finger and got me right there. <laughs> yeah. Those are dangerous. But I kept going, did it again, and I got real good at it. So I could actually, you know my sister? <laughs> she didn't like it, but it was, a, it was a pretty good invention. It was like a rubber band rocket. Now think about that for a minute. It had to be a closed loop. Someone made it that way, and it had to be stretchy. Mm -hmm. Rubber is an interesting thing to stretch that much. So when you pull it back, you're storing up energy. And then when you let go of it, that energy releases. And with so much momentum, it goes flying. Sometimes it can shoot pretty good. It can. Yeah. But never at people. But right? that's a big deal, isn't it? <laughs> do you agree that's a big deal? Uh -huh. Why? Why do I agree <laughs> that's a big deal? Did you know that I like January because there are two famous scientists that were born in January? So moving on. One of, them, one of them was Sir Isaac Newton. Yeah. And the other one was Dr. Roger Billings. These are just a day apart, too, January 4th and 5th. Did too you much that? information. <laughs> well, you wanted me to talk, so I'm talking. OK, it's my turn. So what happened on June 15th? Don't know. <laughs> we will have to study that and find out June 15th. Year unknown. Oh, Waylon Jennings was born. Okay, good for him. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you don't want to talk about rubber bands. I do. Right, I want to know where we're going something with else. that. So, so later on, uh -huh. the story that we talked about, and and we talked about this part and that part. So I'm going to go to the next part. Okay. Are you with me? I'm getting there. Okay. The first part was when I was in the ninth grade, and a wonderful ninth grade science teacher showed me the demonstration of water being pulled apart by electricity, inflated a balloon. The balloon was lighter than air because hydrogen's a very light gas. It mm -hmm. floated up, he ignited it, it popped. There was a big ball of flame, and he said that flame was hydrogen being created. Mm 
Hydrogen plus oxygen from the air creates water. And he wrote a formula on the board. Hydrogen plus oxygen yields water and gives off heat. And that got me so excited. That was the day I decided, wow, if we ran cars on hydrogen, there'd be no pollution. You thought that right there. And I oh. went through that story, and that eventually ended up in me creating a hydrogen-fueled automobile for the science fair. And my senior year of high school, I got the hydrogen Model A to run on hydrogen, of course. And <clears throat> finally, a car, when, when you burn hydrogen, all you get back is water. So completely pollution-free, and yet, to be a good scientist, I tested the exhaust in the chemistry laboratory to confirm there was only water vapor, and to my chagrin, there was a pollutant called nitric oxide. And it was caused just by heating air. Air is made of nitrogen and oxygen, and when you heat it, it reacts together in a small quantity and forms NO, nitric oxide, which then reacts with water and forms nitric acid, which is kind of not a good pollutant. Uh, a lightning bolt creates nitric oxide. And that nitric oxide from thunderstorms, from lightning bolts, is one of the things that helps fertilize our fields. So in a small quantity, it's a good thing. But if all the cars are producing nitric oxide, it's a problem. Gasoline engines produce nitric oxide, but hydrogen burns faster. So my hydrogen engine created 10 times more nitric oxide than a gasoline car. So for a guy that was gonna rid the world from pollution by burning hydrogen, it was a failure. But I still took my project to the science fair. <laughs> can, I, can I show the internet? This Let's is the International yeah. Science Fair down in Dallas, Texan, Texan, Dallas, Texas. Here we are. And look at this. That is, look at that. That is the guy. Telling them about what no, you No, the guy I'm talking to. Gareth is back to us. Oh, who is that? And he's remaining anonymous. <laughs> but if you look, I have my little hydrogen engine. You can see it there in the green. And I told him, Yep, so this is going to be the way we run cars on the fuel. There'll be no pollution. They said, so was there no pollution? I said, yes, there was a lot of pollution. <laughs> and unfortunately, like my <laughs> project wasn't a success. But I did win the Gold and Silver Award at the Science Fair, which is nice, and that paid for college. So that story we've talked about. We go on to the next story at the university where... I was very fortunate to um, receive a research grant from the Ford Motor Company to study why nitric oxide's formed and how we can get rid of it. And I did a lot of studies. That study actually got me into the computer field, which turned out to be very beneficial for me. And eventually, we figured out, theoretically, a way that you could run an engine so it would have essentially no nitric oxide. And the idea was like this. This is, this is some science that everybody can understand. Inside of an engine, there's a piston, and above it, there's what engineers call a combustion chamber. It's a place where you compress the air and the fuel, and in the top of the combustion chamber is a spark plug. And so you shoot a spark, it ignites the fuel-air mixture, and it explodes. And when it explodes, it pushes the piston down. The problem was, when the hydrogen would ignite and explode, it would burn 
10 times faster than gasoline. And so the peak temperature was higher, so you made more nitric oxide. The hotter it is, and since there's air in there, the more it cooks air and makes nitric oxide. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. So according to my theoretical computer study, because we made a model that was doing math to predict what reactions would take place, if we could cool down that flame somehow, it wouldn't make all the pollution. And so in my program, I added a lot of different things to try to get rid of the, the nitric oxide formation. And one thing seemed to work. And that one thing was if you spray water, a fine mist of water into the combustion chamber with the hydrogen oxygen before you ignite it, and then you ignite it, it says the flame would be much cooler, and lo and behold, the nitric oxide would go away. And I thought about it. So you've got this combustion chamber full of hydrogen and oxygen. You spray water mist in it, and then when the spark plug ignites it, the flame starts going through the chamber, and it keeps hitting these little round droplets of water. And when it hits a water droplet, the water boils, it flashes into steam, it expands 1,400 times larger than the droplet, and it uses up a lot of energy. The result is you get a lot of pressure inside that chamber from all that steam, and so it pushes the piston down good, but it doesn't get near as hot because every droplet that, that flashes into steam is gonna cool the flame. And so according to the computer, that could get rid of 99% of the nitric oxide. That was really exciting to me. Now all I need is a way to find out. Well, I had my little test engine, and I took a sample back to the same chemistry lab and tested it to see if the nitric oxide was gone. And it was gone. But the instrument we were using to measure it, it's called a gas chromatograph, and it could only measure whether or not about 10% was left or 1%. It wasn't accurate enough to tell if we really got rid of all of it. It was lower. It was lower than we could detect, but the instrument wasn't very good. So I needed a really good nitric oxide analyzer. And we didn't have one anywhere at my university. So I couldn't prove whether or not this thing was working or it was not working. What did you do? So then I invented the Gutenberg Press. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, wrong story. It's kind of all tied together. Let me, though, let me try that again. Let me back up, back up, back up, back up. <laughs> so what I did is I read in the newspaper that there was a big contest going on. And this was a contest between all universities that wanted to enter. It was going to be called the Clean Air Race. And it was when we were having a lot of problems with air pollution, and they're saying, so all the universities are challenged to build a pollution-free car, and you're supposed to bring your car to the General Motors Proving Grounds in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where they'll test them, and they'll declare one university the winner. I thought, General Motors has a good tester. <laughs> but you did. So I decided <laughs> to enter a car, but I had to get a car, and then I had to convert it to hydrogen. Well, there was a, a new kind of car that had just come out, 
It was a car with a rotary engine. Has anyone heard of the Winkle engine? Mm-hmm. A regular engine has pistons that go up and down. A rotary engine doesn't have any pistons. It just has a rotor that spins round and round, still burns gasoline, explodes. I thought, oh, that is the engine of the future. I'll convert that to hydrogen, and I'll use that in the race. So I went to the dealership that had a rotary engine, Mazda, brought it back to university. I converted it to hydrogen. I took a sample of the exhaust to make sure it was working good. And to my chagrin, the exhaust was filthy, dirty. It had hydrocarbons. What's hydrocarbons? Hydrocarbons are the pollution that comes out of burning gasoline. When you burn hydrogen, you can't get hydrocarbons. But my engine had hydrocarbons. And it also had carbon monoxide. You can't get that by burning hydrogen. And it also had a little bit of nitric oxide. We couldn't measure the nitric oxide because our instrument wasn't sensitive enough. But how did we get these hydrocarbons? And then I found out that in the Winkle engine, there's a sill on this big rotor that goes around, and it wants to seize up. So they put oil on it all the time. And the oil was burning and causing pollution. I've already enrolled in the clean air race. Yep, we're bringing in a car. This car was terrible. It was terrible. (laughs) And we only had a couple weeks before the race. And so I panicked. I went down to the local Volkswagen dealer. And I said, you know what? I built a hydrogen car in high school, and and now we're going to the clean air race in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and, and we need a car. Could you furnish a car for us to maybe do some experiments on? (laughs) And the owner of the dealership says, will it hurt the car? The experiment is... Shouldn't. Shouldn't hurt it. (laughs) Shouldn't hurt it. And so lo and behold, he loaned us a green Volkswagen. Volkswagens have the engine in the back. It looks something like this. Up there, and there's that strange person again. Strange. But there is the engine, and we immediately worked day and night to get it converted to run on hydrogen, and we put a little hydrogen tank in it in the front, which is where the trunk was. Under the hood was the trunk. You put put hydrogen cylinder there. Yeah, but it was going forward still. (laughs) And then we loaded it up in the truck and, and hauled it back to Michigan. And when we got there, There were cars from all over the United States, every kind of car you can imagine. A bunch of them were electric cars. Back then, electric cars were were a pretty new, neat thing. There had been some, but there there were quite a few electric cars. And then there were cars that ran on things like methanol and things that had catalytic converters. There was even a flywheel car. And one by one, these needed to go in the laboratory and be tested. Uh, Middle Tennessee State University had a very interesting car. Their car ran on pneumonia. Not pneumonia. Ammonia? Ammonia. Ran on stinky ammonia? They ran on ammonia. And when they would start their car up, it had a catalyst to get rid of any ammonia that got through the system. Mm -hmm. And so they would drive it around outside getting the catalyst hot, and you could smell ammonia for like two blocks. 
<laughs> but when it finally got caught, no pollution, got right? hot, it wouldn't make ammonia smell. And then they drove inside the building and tested it. And they were fairly clean. That's kind of like, no. Yeah. <laughs> but then they started going through the electric cars. And they took the electric cars into the laboratory and they have a probe to test the exhaust, but there was no exhaust. And so they said, well, if there's no exhaust, there's no pollution. So they got a perfect score. And the way they scored it was, you take the amount of hydrocarbon pollution times 100, plus the amount of carbon monoxide times 100, plus the amount of nitric oxide times 100, it was like golf. Whoever had the lowest score had the least amount of pollution, and they won. Well, all of the electric cars were zero, 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 zero. And I thought, you know what? That's cheating. <laughs> that is cheating. Cheating. Because they had to make that electricity that was making pollution somewhere. Yeah, but people don't think that. I know, but the real strange thing was the flywheel car. <laughs> so this is a car that doesn't have a motor, it just has a great big piece of metal shaped like a wheel on bearings. And they would spin this flywheel up to very, 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 very high speeds. I mean, you're going so fast, it took a lot of energy to get it spinning. And then they would drive with it. And as the wheel slowed down, they would drive. The flywheel is attached the to the car. The flywheel is inside the car. Inside the it car. was like in place of the motor. And it was a big, heavy metal flywheel. The only problem is, how do you get it spinning? And I saw them. They had a semi-tractor, you know, like pulls the big trailers. And they pushed the car up to it and hooked it up. And then the semi fired up its big diesel engine. There's a big cloud of smoke coming out. And the flywheel is spinning up. And the cloud's getting bigger and stinkier. And when they got it spinning real fast, they disconnected it. And they drove inside the laboratory, and it passed the driving test with no emissions. Okay, that's a and little And the smell silly. outside. <laughs> but it was outside. That's the point, I guess. I thought, that's not fair. It's not very feasible yeah. driving like that. So then it was time to test the hydrogen car. And it turned out that somebody had figured out that it was a good idea to run a car on hydrogen. And it happened to be another university. It was called UCLA. Really? Yeah, University of California at Los Angeles had a little hydrogen Ford Fiesta. Nope. It was a Ford, but it wasn't a Fiesta. Back up, back up. Anyway, a little Ford. <laughs> and <laughs> their car was running on hydrogen and theirs went in before ours. And they tested their car, they measured the emissions, and they had to find some way to get rid of the nitric oxide because by now people knew about it. Because mm -hmm. I'd published my papers and they got rid of nitric oxide by taking some of the exhaust coming out of the engine and running it back through the engine again to slow down the flame and cool it down. And their nitric oxide was much better than my high school car. But it wasn't nearly as good as the electrics, which were perfect. And so they kind of came in better than the methanol and the gasoline catalytic converter cars. But they didn't really do that good. Then it was our turn. 
So we took the Volkswagen into the laboratory at the General Motors Proving Grounds, and they had these two long cylinders that you back up onto. It's called a dynamometer. And so you drive the car, the back wheels spin on these two rollers, and it's like going down the road. And they make it like you're going uphill and downhill so they can do a scientific test. This is a picture of our Volkswagen being tested at General Motors by the General Motors test driver. And you can see he's looking at the instrument. The car is sitting on those big rollers. We were number 303. It says <laughs> Urban Vehicle Design Competition, and there it is. That was our car. We got it in there on the dynamometer, mm -hmm. and uh, it wouldn't run. As soon as they, we pushed it in, because we wanted run? to save fuel, the car would not run. Oh. When we tried to start it, it wouldn't start. It would just pop, pop, pop. It wouldn't go. Oh. That's not good. That was embarrassing. In fact, that was terrible, but it wouldn't start. And uh, I didn't really know what to do. If we go back to that picture showing me at the back of the car, uh -huh. look like I'm uh, kind of panicking. Well, here are the guys from the Environmental Protection Agency that came to say, what is this hydrogen car? And lo and behold, now it wouldn't run. Well, in the laboratory, I ran in, lifted up the hood in the back of the car, which would be the trunk, which mm -hmm. was the hood, and looked at the engine, and the engine had an accelerator that when you push on the gas pedal, it would open and close to make the engine go slower and faster. And the accelerator would open when you push the pedal. When you let the pedal up, it would pop back up, except it didn't pop back up, it stayed down. Hmm. And I looked at it, and the spring that connected the throttle was cut in half. Oh no, that didn't just happen. What do you do? I mean, and that's when I remembered my early invention. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that stretches. And I asked the guy at the laboratory, <laughs> says, could you possibly come up with a rubber band? <laughs> and I put the rubber band in place of the spring, and this is an absolutely true story. And the rubber band pulled the throttle back when you push it and stretched the rubber band. Goodness. The spring was just dangling there. And then they tried to start and it started, and they made me go out and watch through the window. And the car started driving the cycle pretty good. It looks like at least it's running, but we didn't know how good the results were gonna be. And then all of a sudden, the guy, the driver, he stopped the test right in the middle. And we were watching the meter, because we could see that from outside the window. And he got out and he started working on the machines or something, I thought, oh brother, this is not good. When the middle Tennessee car that was run on ammonia, when it was being tested before us, they were testing and then they stopped in the middle and they went and adjusted the machine, the tester, the instrument, they ran again, they stopped, they adjusted a second time, the third time. I mean, what had happened is there was so much nitric oxide coming oh. out of the ammonia car <laughs> That's not neat. that they had to keep changing the scale on the analyzer so it could handle all that nitric oxide. So when they were testing our car and they had to stop and I could see them adjusting the scale, oh no, we still have nitric oxide. 
I'd never been able to really see how much we had because we didn't have a good enough analyzer. They had a very good analyzer. They had an analyzer that was so good, they could smell the pollution just in clean air that you breathe. Mm. So they ran it again. They stopped again. They got out and they just got out. Oh, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> and then the third time they completed the whole test, they calculated the score, they calculated the results, and they came out and posted them. What I learned is that when they stopped and they were adjusting the instrument, they were making it more sensitive. Oh, how neat. Because the nitric oxide <laughs> was so low. And they made it more sensitive. And when they finally came out, they said, this car's exhaust is cleaner than the air in Michigan. Wow. Like, what? <laughs> and the guy says, this car is cleaning the air as it drives. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And so there were over 500 newspapers that ran a story saying, this car cleans the air as it drives. Which car. is really neat. <laughs> and the Los Angeles Times, by the way, this car won first place because since our air was cleaner than the air going in, it meant our score was negative. <laughs> and we beat all the electrics and the flywheel car. And the other hydrogen car. The other hydrogen car was, was a little bit higher because mm -hmm. exhaust gas recirculation works, but water induction is amazing. And I got a patent on the idea of using, in fact, two patents, on spraying water induction into the cylinder to make hydrogen cars run extremely clean. So I got lost a little bit in okay. the story. So it was a rubber band. <laughs> so how did you come up with the water induction? I didn't, you were talking about the computer. Well, the water induction is, is a really, really good in questions. So I was at the university. Uh -huh. I'd written a, a letter, proposal to Ford Motor saying I'd won the science fair, but we had this nasty pollution. And I thought there'd be a way to get rid of it. And they gave me a grant to study ways to get rid of it. And so. We used a computer mm -hmm. to run chemical reactions. Chemists learn how different elements react. And so they can predict by the elements that are there, by the temperature, by the pressure, they can, react, they can predict what a reaction will create. Mm -hmm. And that's how we engineer a lot of our systems. So I was using that model, and I tried all different kinds of things. Less hydrogen, more hydrogen. I put everything I could think in and ran this test and ran it and ran it and ran it. And I was trying to think, you know, if, if you put something weird in it, where are you going to get the stuff mm -hmm. to put in it? And I thought, so what have I got there? And I realized the one thing I have is the exhaust is coming out and it's water vapor. Because when I burn hydrogen, what I get is water. Mm -hmm. So I've got this water. What if spraying the water back in would do the job? Oh. And that's how I got the idea. And so I put a little bit of water in, and the nitric oxide went down according to the calculation. Oh. And then I put more water in, and it went down even further. And then I put more water in, and this just all in a computer computation. And it came back, and I remember the exact words. The program said, hey, Murphy, this won't even burn. 
<laughs> so I figured maybe I have too much. Yeah, I, uh, anyway. Yeah, it did. And I'll tell you something about programmers, doesn't it? So I thought that was funny. But the water induction turned out to be a magic thing. Later, as we did some serious scientific studies about it, we found out that when you spray those little droplets of water and they explode into little steam pellets, you know, in a little burst of steam, mm -hmm. that you get an effect that an engineer would call a ranking cycle, like a steam engine. And just little bursts of it in the middle of the chamber. And so you get a higher pressure, which pushes the piston down more, so you get higher efficiency. By spraying the water in, you get more mileage than if you don't, but only in a gasoline engine. If you did that in a, in a excuse me, only in a hydrogen engine. Mm -hmm. If you did it in a gasoline engine, that water would just make it smoke and not burn. But hydrogen can burn even with that water there. So it made it have a little better efficiency, it made it have a little bit more power, because that water was vaporizing into steam and pushing the piston down, and we made our own as we drive. When you start up a hydrogen engine, the uh, exhaust system is, is room temperature, so it immediately starts condensing the water and we used the exhaust to release our metal hydride, hydrogen, which cooled it, which condensed the water and made it be a pretty unique system. So the moral of the story is, before you enter the clean aeration, be sure to shoot some rubber bands. <laughs> yeah, if you hadn't, if you hadn't played yeah, with those. <laughs> if, if there hadn't been an immediate solution, we would have been disqualified. And of course, no one believed that it was because uh, the spring had broken or maybe even had been tampered with. But that's what was wrong. And by putting the rubber band on, now the rubber band would have wore out pretty fast, but it lasted long enough for the test. And uh, we never had another spring break. But it's spring break. <laughs> Couple months. Wow. So that's where that came from. <laughs> Somewhere. But it's, it's so indicative of the way science and life work together. You have these great plans, these great intentions. And, you know, I talked about, hey, Murphy, that mm -hmm. won't even burn. Well, in science research circles, we have a thing we laugh at, and we call it, Murphy's Law. And Murphy's Law, there's, everybody seems to have a slightly different version of it. Some of you physicists will know about Murphy's Law. But basically, it's to the effect that if anything can go wrong, it will. And the addition to that law is, and if anything does go wrong, it will go wrong at the absolute worst time. Which it was. This was the worst time for it to, to go wrong. So it's... It's a fact that when you do a project that you're going to have challenges and you're going to have problems. Uh, when we were sending our first men to the moon, uh, it was a, an impossible task, especially with the technology that existed at the time. When you think about all the things that had to be done for that mission to succeed, uh, it, was, it was a very difficult mission. The computers were one of the biggest problems. Computers were just not quite ready for a mission like that. I mean, a big mainframe was, but you couldn't put it in the, in the machine. And so that's one of the places where the, the boys and girls at that's MIT right. stepped up 
and develop these amazing custom computers to be able to do the job of flying that equipment and getting us there and back. The trip to the moon was based on so much science that it's almost unbelievable. The science of even knowing when to shoot where to hit the moon. The science of knowing how to go around the moon and, and have the lander go down, but the orbiter orbit around because it was impossible with the resources we had then, and maybe even now, it was impossible to have the whole spaceship land on the moon and then have the whole spaceship go back up and, and then be able to travel back to the Earth. So what they did is they shot the, the orbiter and it just kept going around the moon. And then the little landing module with a couple of the astronauts went down to the surface while another astronaut kept the orbiter going. And then they had to come and, and dock back up. And part of the lander stayed on the moon, and they just had the little module to come back. It's, it's interesting how all of this is possible only because we knew the science and we knew the math to do the science and get it right. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about learning, about the things that students are learning in, in their studies. Uh, chemistry, physics are a couple of my favorite subjects, but every speck of knowledge that you acquire empowers you, like a fuel which gives you the power to engineer. A fuel of engineering is knowledge, and the more you learn, the more you can do. We have the ability today to do things that were completely impossible back when I converted the car to hydrogen or when we flew to the moon first time because great scientists have developed breakthroughs and made observations and shot rubber bands or whatever it was to find the pieces of technology that made it possible to do all the things we can today. It is such an exciting time to be alive. The world has new problems that never existed some of our problems didn't even exist a year ago. And many problems have existed for hundreds of years and they've never been solved, but they're becoming critical. And yet here we are with all these new technologies and all these new inventioners coming out of our schools that can take these challenges on and keep the world alive and happy and, and well endowed. So I love uh, what's happening with Acellus because I see wonderful, brilliant young people becoming empowered to solve the challenges of tomorrow. And if I could say anything to the students tonight, I'd say, guys, this is your opportunity to prepare for greatness. Greatness comes from doing great things. And you can't get discouraged when something like a spring breaks. You need to have a rubber band you can't get discouraged when math seems a little bit hard or you're struggling trying to memorize the things you need to for science class or English or history or whatever it is. These things are challenging, but you can do it. And it, it's work, it's effort, it's hard, but that's what really makes greatness is when you overcome when it's hard. 
Um, here in Kansas City, we have a, a group of guys we call the Chiefs. <laughs> and um, they're going to go to the, the playoffs again. I think this is the fifth year in a row. And it's interesting uh, when some people say that it can't be done, these, these Chief players say, but we'll do it. And I think if you take that kind of an attitude about learning and about your education, if you could just realize how valuable it is, you would make the effort. And the neat thing about Acellus is we, we study the progress our students are making. And when we see a student kind of getting stuck, we go jump on it like hens on a June bug. Why are they <laughs> stuck? Why are they stuck? And we find out where you're having your problem, and then we fix some things to make it work for you. Uh, some students get stuck and discouraged on cellus and they give up. It's the worst thing to do. If you're stuck, just keep trying, just keep trying. And while you're doing that, Acellus <coughs> knows, look, this student is stuck, and it starts sending messages to all the teachers back here working on this. We say, oh, someone's stuck, quick, 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 quick. <laughs> and we start trying to figure out why. Mm -hmm. And as a result, people that learn different ways, and everybody learns a little bit different, but people that learn all these different ways are finding out they can succeed. And it is surprising because Acellus gets better every single day. We have a wonderful team that just look at it. And you know, if you uh, take a lecture and then you go to answer some questions, solve some problems so you can get to the next lecture, when you answer those problems, Acellus is watching to see if you get it right or not. And if you don't get it right, then it, it says, why didn't they get it right? This is a wonderful student, so it must be a bad problem. It really does. It gives a grade to every assessment or every problem we have. And when the, the teaching crew comes to work in the morning, they sign in and it says, we've got some terrible problems. This is the worst one on Acellus. <laughs> fix it. And so we fix it. One of our problems a few years ago was for elementary kids. We're trying to teach them about things like, this is a beard. You know, it was kindergarten. This is a beard. And then they're supposed to look at these pictures and say which picture was a guy with a beard. It says, which one is, has a beard? And when they looked at the pictures, it was a guy with a beard, but there was this little bird in one of the pictures, and his feathers looked like a beard. <laughs> and a bunch of kids said, oh, there's a beard. <laughs> and then they'd get it wrong. And so we said, this problem is bad. And we went and looked at, uh-oh, the bird has a beard. <laughs> and so the bird went. But don't stop. Keep persevering and pushing forward because it's telling us, Cellus, that we've got something wrong in the course. If you're stuck, it means that a Cellus has got to do better. And if you're on the courseware development team, you know, that's really what I believe, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So persevere, keep fighting. If you have to, take a deep breath. Shoot some rubber bands and go right back in. But not at okay? anybody, right? You don't shoot rubber bands at people. Now we're going to take a minute out for a social <laughs> emotional lesson. Would you like to tell us who we shoot rubber bands at, please? The floor. Or the fly. What's wrong with the floor? <laughs> See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>